What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. In this episode, I'm interviewing Lawrence Jordan. Lawrence has been in the film industry since the 80s, working primarily as an editor, and we discuss his current project, which is helping those just starting out get into assisting editing with his new company, Mastered the Workflow. Now, this episode, we're going to talk about his work as an editor, as well as his work with Tupop, which is an early forum for those who were editing in the early 2000s, as well well as his current project, Master the Workflow. With all that said, here's my interview with Lawrence Jordan. How did you get your start in film? Got my start in film when I was a kid, pretty much. I always loved film and television, and I was lucky enough to have a family that was in the uh, nascent media business. My grandfather was a projectionist in New York in the very early days. In fact, he was a kid, and he cranked the Nickelodeons in Times Square, uh, as legend has it. And uh, my father sort of followed in his footsteps, not as a projectionist, but he got an opportunity to get into editing, and he started out uh, editing editing animation and things like that. And then he built what was probably, well, it was definitely the first and and probably the biggest of its time, a commercial post-production house in uh, New York. And he did, you know, like all the major campaigns uh, of those days. And turns out that a lot of, you know, sort of people who went on to become feature film editors went through there. So, you know, I, you know, again, like I say, I loved movies, loved television, had toyed with the idea of getting into cinematography because I, I had started taking pictures when I was quite young and had my own dark room and things like that. And I went to work for a camera rental house and, you know, loved it, but found it was really tough to get into the cinematographer's guild. I mean, it was a really close shop, even with all, you know, my contacts, uh, you know, my contacts were in editing. And after a few years, I just decided to, you know, to go to work for my dad's uh, trailer company, which uh, he had started when we moved to California back in the 70s. And I started at the bottom. I mean, for the camera rental house, I was a driver picking up and dropping off cameras. And then when I worked for my dad, I was, I was, I literally was a PA for a year or two. And then I started getting more responsibilities as I picked up more things about the, you know, the craft and, you know, started assisting and then cutting. But I was in trailers and I always wanted to be in features. That was sort of my life goal at that time. And I had an opportunity to go to work for someone who used to work across the hall from him, a woman named Dee Dee Allen, who is kind of a legendary film editor. And uh, yeah, Dee Dee got me a job as uh, an assistant or an apprentice sound editor on a picture for a director named Jim Bridges named, uh, named Mike's Murder. And Norville Crutcher was the supervising sound editor. And I was back to doing menial tasks (laughs) and uh, schlepping, you know, starting once again at the bottom of the ladder, but I was working on a feature and, uh, and I was just thrilled, obviously thrilled to work for Didi. And uh, again, Jim Bridges, who had directed the China syndrome and, uh, you know, so many great movies. And I never looked back, man. I just stuck with it. I worked as uh, an apprentice for a couple of years. Then I worked as uh, an assistant in 35 millimeter film for 10 years. 
And uh, when the Avid came along, you know, having had a background in in filmmaking and post production, you know, once I saw that, I I knew that the the game was going to change dramatically. And um, I basically took off a year from my assisting work to learn everything I could about the Avid. Actually, went back and worked with my dad. He was doing some more marketing stuff at that time, like electronic press kits and and still some trailers, and he did some titles. Sequences, and we worked together, and we basically sort of like tried to learn everything we could about the Avid at that time. And I became like the guy who knew the Avid when it first sort of transitioned from commercials to television features. So uh, really, knowing the Avid gave me my opportunity to to really start cutting. Although I had done quite a bit of cutting as an associate editor, you know, an additional editor on Thirty Five. Once I was, you know, sort of like the go-to guy on the Avid or one of the few, I was able to get a gig with Stephen Bochco Productions, who was, you know, one of the biggest producers and most successful producers in television, because they were one of the first series to cut on the Avid. Those guys were pretty forward-thinking. And after that uh, first season of a show called Civil Wars, they asked me to cut the pilot for NYPD Blue. And uh, that was a great opportunity. Greg Hobble was the director and he was kind of like one of the top guys in television and you know it was just a combination of hard work and right place right time like so much uh, other stuff in life so uh, yeah I was off and running and I started cutting from that point on. So what did you because growing up with someone like your father who's working in this in the industry did you learn anything from him that you you still use to this day or something that you took away from uh, working with him that's been really useful for you? Yeah, I mean, I would say that like so many of the foundations of of things that he used to, you know, uh, say to me and, you know, had taught me are are kind of like a lot of the foundations that I use today. I think the primary one was having a lot of confidence in cutting. I mean, back in the 35 millimeter days, we, you know, obviously, you know, you cut the film and you had to splice it together if you wanted to change your mind. And one of the things that I tell people and, uh, you know, it's sort of a joke now because it's digital, but, you know, it's only splicing tape and you can change your mind. And, you know, that's what editing is. It's a, it's a constant process of refining and, and re-editing and uh, honing. So, uh, you know, it's like those kinds of foundations. And again, having the confidence to just go and try things, experiment, you know, be creative, think outside the box. I would say like one of the most important things that I ever learned. And uh, yeah, my dad taught me that. And now you got to tell me about editing NYPD Blue because it is such an iconic show and you were there on the pilot. And one of the things I've, you know, any of the editors I've talked to, one of the big things that they've always discussed is when you're cutting a pilot, a lot of it is figuring out the structure, figuring out how things are going to flow. So can you take me back to what it was like in the cutting room with NYPD Blue? How much discovery was required? How much searching for for that structure was, was needed? Yeah, you know, again, I, I just consider myself so fortunate because I was working with such a talented bunch. Obviously, Stephen Bochco, one of the preeminent writers of that time, David Milch, former, uh, you, you know, assistant to the Poet Laureate of the United States. I mean, these guys were of such high caliber that I, I turned to my assistant uh, on the show at, at one point and I said, well, enjoy this, man, because it's all downhill from here. <laughs> but uh, no, kidding aside, Greg had a really, you know, very, very 
very sort of specific and clear vision of what he wanted that show to be like, as did the writers and producers. They wanted to do things that really hadn't been done on network television before, you know, from pushing the boundaries of, of what was acceptable on TV. You know, they had great actors, as always. Greg is a, is a master at casting. I mean, he's the guy who discovered, like, Ed Norton and Laura Linney, you know, in his first feature, Primal Fear. And what was nice was they knew me from the previous show that I had done, Civil Wars, and they kind of let me, you know, sort of, you know, do my thing. They let me, you know, just put together my editor's cut and utilize the kinds of things that they were trying to do stylistically to the best of my ability and as I saw it. And there was a lot of freedom. And then when they were finished shooting, Greg came in and, you know... Television is an interesting animal. You know, it's like a 43 or 48 page script and they usually stick pretty closely to the script. So, I mean, I think our, you know, I think my my first cut was, you know, really close to an hour. So there wasn't that much to cut out and we honed it down pretty quickly because pilot schedules are quick and, you know, we showed it to the network. Uh, Bob Iger, who is now the uh, chairman of Disney, was the executive in charge at uh, ABC at the time and he came into Stephen's uh, screening room and he watched it and he gave us his feedback and we were you know off and running. Unique uh, in that situation though was that um, Stephen because of his you know his background and his uh, track record we already had a commitment for I think an initial 12 episodes so we were going to make 12 no matter what. It was a pilot but they already had a commitment and I think at some point during that 12 episode uh, you know, shooting production period, they committed and committed to the full 22 episodes. So, uh, yeah, the feedback was great and everybody was happy. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was in uh, editor hog heaven. What can I tell you? I felt uh, really fortunate to be there. Now, there's another sort of iconic thing that you've worked on, but it's outside of film a bit, and that's two pop forums. Are you up for chatting about two pop? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. For those who who aren't aware of it, can you tell us about it? Because I I remember, you know, learning the Avid and going to these forums with questions every day. So if you could tell me about 2POP. 2POP was an idea, you know, because I saw the Avid and the Avid was based on the Macintosh. And I had previously, you know, had a PC when I was sort of like younger and I would, you know, do some writing and, you know, things like that. You know, it was all command line interface stuff. But when I saw the Avid and I saw the Mac for the first time, which was in 1991, you know, it was like I was struck by a bolt of lightning, man. You know, I just like the graphical user interface and the ease of use. It just spoke to me. I'm a visual and audio learner and that's how I see the world and it just all made sense and all of a sudden I thought wow you know this is a this is a computer I can really use and you know I just fell in love with the Mac I really became sort of a Mac geek and went to a lot of Mac user group meetings I used to go down to like the Department of Water and Power building down in LA and just learn about all the new things that were happening uh, in the development of the Mac and of course digital video was my you know was my primary area of interest. I was just so fascinated with the fact that we were going to soon be cutting movies on a computer. And 
I also, you know, this was also sort of like the, you know, the beginnings of the web and, you know, starting from, you know, again, text only user groups and uh, special interest groups or SIGs as they used to be called, where we would find out the latest information about digital video or what have you. You know, the the Mozilla browser came out and I just, I just really was into it. I, you know, I really, you know, I was right place, right time and I was young and I was, you know, seeing this technology develop and I just, you know, fell in love with the web. And after a few years, I started to consult a little bit with Randy Ubilos from Adobe. Uh, he came down and he asked me, you know, what my thoughts were about Adobe Premiere at the time, which he had developed. And uh, we sort of developed this relationship where, you know, I would give feedback and tell him what I needed as an editor. And uh, at some point, he said he was leaving Adobe and he was going to work for a company called Macromedia who developed Flash uh, initially and Macromedia Director. And uh, they said that they wanted to create a video editing product. So he created a team and he went to Macromedia and they started working on a, a product called Key Grip. And, you know, Randy kind of like would, you know, bend my ear a little bit here and there and he would talk to me. He actually came down and told me. Uh, I remember uh, him coming down to a, a film I was working on and telling me about there's this new format called DV coming out <laughs> and I'm like wow it's like a digital file that you can just transfer and you know <laughs> and I was just you know blown away I mean right you know now of course it seems pretty quaint but uh, it was a major breakthrough at the time I mean standard def uh, linear tape was still the predominant uh, you know media at that time so we had talked about it and I, I actually went up to Apple a couple of times and talked to people like uh, him and Michael Wall who was working on the project and I met a guy named Ralph Fairweather, who was their sort of like support guy. Now, just because Macromedia wasn't owned by Apple, but I believe Keygrip moves to Apple and becomes Final Cut Pro, does it not? Yes, yes. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Uh, at, at a certain point, you know, I saw that uh, Macromedia decided to sell off the video product to Apple. Steve Jobs had come back and he wanted a, a video product. I mean, you know, obviously that guy was a visionary and he bought the key grip product from Macromedia. I think he paid 22 million bucks for it or something, but you'd have to check that. And they all moved over to Apple. And being the Mac head I was, I was just, you know, over the moon. I mean, this was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, this is going to be an Apple product. Fantastic. And um, they continued to work on it. This was over a period of, uh, gosh, probably three or four years. And I was kind of at the stage, you know, every time I would finish a film as a freelancer, you know, you're in between jobs and things like that. And I was like, oh, man, I want to create a website about this thing and everything and uh, become the information portal for Final Cut Pro. You know, because I had been afforded so many opportunities to get into the industry and, you know, I really wanted to share that knowledge. And I love teaching. And I thought a, a website with forums would be a great, you know, a great way to do that. And I just started working on it. I, I built it. This is before WordPress and things like that. I built it in a piece of software called Adobe Go Live. And there were some Perl scripts that you could build bulletin boards out of. And, you know, I worked, Jesus, day and night. And I got this thing called Tupop.com up and running. I made my first post introducing the forum and, and Tupop and what we were about. Out. And I got to tell you, Gordon, it was so quick, whereas 
so many people just filled those forms and had the same passion that I did for digital video. And it just exploded. I mean, it became this amazing community for people who wanted to find out and share information about Final Cut Pro, digital video, digital filmmaking, and so on. So uh, yeah, that was kind of like the beginnings of Tupac. But you know, the thing is, is that I still wanted to cut feature films. And as, as successful as that thing became, you know, I still was looking to advance my career as an editor. So I was kind of like a little bit of a split personality because Tupop had really taken off and I got offered a job by some guys who had created this bigger network of websites, Creative Planet, to kind of come in and they would sort of nurture Tupop and and provide resources. They had a boatload of money invested in them during the first internet uh, boom in in 2000. And uh, so I went and I I sort of brought Tupop over there and they paid me as a consultant. And I did that for about a year. I actually sort of scooped up Ralph Fairweather from Apple, and he sort of joined the team and, you know, was a invaluable resource because this guy knew every nook and cranny of Final Cut. Certainly better than me. And he supported the community. And then out of that, Michael Horton created the LA Final Cut Pro user group and Daniel Baruby created Boston and it spread like wildfire. But after about a year, I got offered a picture and uh, I said, I got to go do that. So um, I kind of left Tupop in Ralph's hands and they kept growing it and they kept growing the community because, you know, there's nothing more accessible than, than an Apple product. Even though at the time it was $1,000, compared to the Avid, that was, you know, that was peanuts. I mean, I think I paid $120,000 for, for my first Avid uh, setup. I always tell students, whenever I'm talking to students and they're complaining about the price of software, I'm always like, well, the Avid, people mortgaged their houses for it. People, like, took out loans to get it. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't cheap. Oh, yeah. Yeah, many loans. But, you know, I would bring the Avid on my own shows. And uh, I mean, you know, the other thing that got me so excited about Final Cut was, again, you know, it was like the democratization of the media. It was no longer held in the hands of the few. And, you know, independent creators and artists from every walk of life could harness this power and and use it to create films and and programs. And uh, look at it now. I mean, you know, you YouTube and Vimeo and places like that where you have, you know, all kinds of people doing their thing and, and, and becoming filmmakers. And uh, I think the streaming revolution is just an extension of that. The volume of content is, is almost overwhelming. I mean, people talk to me about TV shows they're watching or series they're watching. And, you know, I haven't even heard of some of them because there are so many. But like anything else, usually the really talented projects stand out. And that's what it's all about. You know, it's a uh, it's a lot of material, but uh, usually you get to see the good ones if, if you've got enough time in the day and you're not working uh, too many hours. <laughs> so I, I try to catch as much of it as I can. That brings me to the to your new project outside of film, but your your master of the workflow. So what is that? What can you tell us about this this project that you're working on? Yeah, you know, um, 
I was working on a film called Naked, uh, which was released uh, a couple of years ago by Netflix. I've been working with the same director on three films now. I just finished my most recent one called Sex Tuplets for Netflix, and it's with Marlon Wayans, who was a comedian, and uh, you know he was came up under his brother and the Wayans brothers, and you know did films like Scary Movie and White Chicks and Little Man. So you know Marlon has sort of like his own following and and, and a pretty good sized niche, and he's developed a good relationship with Netflix. And I was doing Naked with an assistant that I had worked with previously named Richard Sanchez, who's a really hardworking and talented guy. And uh, we were in the cutting room. And, you know, I've always had a, a lot of respect for, you know, good assistants because I took a lot of pride in that job. And it's a difficult job. And it's a very sort of unique and niche kind of job that a lot of people don't really understand, especially outside the industry. And, you know, I was just so, you know, happy with Richard's work and, and how smooth our workflow was going and how on top of it he was. And he had uh, shown me this FileMaker database that he had created, which is, you know, I call the digital code book. When I was an assistant, there was always a code book to keep track of all the film and all of the elements in a project, but it was on paper. It was analog. And of course, people started using FileMaker because it was a really accessible database and it was on the Mac. And, you know, my assistants over the years had had, had you know, different code books, but Richards was kind of like, you know, it was a code book on steroids. I mean, he really kind of built that thing out and he taught himself, you know, a couple of like sort of scripting languages and things like that. And he built this thing to track the visual effects. And so, you know, I basically sat down with him one day and I said, you know, show me this code book and, and, and stuff like that. And so we, we ended up talking about it for like a few days and stuff. And I don't know, a few days later, I just said to him, I said, man, we should really sort of quantify this information about what an assistant editor does in the digital age. It's just like, you can't learn these things in film school. I mean, you can get an overview and you can get an idea about it, but the nuts and bolts of what an assistant editor does on a feature from start to finish, and not only the technical aspects, but the political aspects, the diplomacy aspects of how you interact with the director and the editor and the producers and the studio. You know, I, I had this idea about giving people sort of like a really, really, you know, deep dive into what we do. And I thought about this over the years since Tupac, and I've always thought about, you know, a course of some kind. And, you know, but I always thought, well, it's such a small niche. Who's really going to be interested in this or how many people? So Richard and I talked about it. And then we decided, you know what we'll do? We'll put up a post on some of the Facebook groups and we'll see how many people would be interested in this kind of course. And in 48 hours, we had over 300 responses from people who said, definitely interested, please keep me informed. So we thought, well, that's a pretty good <laughs> response from just a couple of Facebook posts. And to make a long story short, we went on and we created the course. We spoke about it at uh, Michael Horton's group here in LA, uh, you know, LA Creative Pro User Group, formerly LA uh, Final Cut Pro User Group. And we had a lot of people come out 
and show a high level of interest. And we actually pre-sold the product. You know, we said this is something, you know, that we're in the midst of developing and you people could be, you know, the first on board. We gave them a big discount. And that night we sold like uh, 40 of them. And over the next few days, we got emails and we had our first, uh, we wanted to cap it at 50 students and we had our first 50 students. And then we continued to develop the course, which was released. Gosh, I can't remember exactly how many months later, maybe three or four months later. And I, I don't know what to say. The response has just been really great. We've put over 400 people through the course in about a year and a half or a little little more than that. We have students in over 35 countries around the world from you know Australia to Estonia. And it's just a really excited and engaged group of people who want to become film editors who ultimately want to cut feature films and television across the spectrum, whether it's studio films or independents or whatever. And, you know, we try to, you know, sort of explain the path, you know, the most traditional path to becoming a film editor is becoming a good assistant first. It doesn't always have to be that way. And it, you know, in, in commercials or maybe promos or things like that, maybe that it's not as often or required, but when you're working in sort of high end production and post-production, usually people, they progress along a path. And in editing, it's as an assistant to an editor. And people really, like I say, have been engaged. And uh, we've got a we've got a students-only Facebook group that, you know, uh, people help each other out and they provide information, whether it be technical or, you know, career kind of information. And it's been really fun. And we're in the process of developing three or four more courses at the present time. And and um, we'll see what happens with it. It's uh, like I say, it's been a lot of fun. Well, what's crazy to me is, you know, because I've taught at various universities and colleges. And the f- most frustrating thing to me is when I started teaching, there was the sound class, the editing class, the color class, the, you know, what have you. So I could, you know, spend a class or two talking about assisting because I'd be focusing on editing. And in the last, I would say, five years, what I've seen, which has been beyond frustrating, is they're trying to save money. So they'll amalgamate all the classes. So instead of having sound, color and editing, it's now this is post-production. It's like teach them post-production. I'm like, well, you know, I'm not a specialist in sound or I'm not a specialist in color correction. And so all of a sudden they lose the assistant stuff that I was able to teach them. And so seeing something like this has been very exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And again, I think that when people are going through film schools and sort of technical schools, they get a taste for a lot of the different sort of crafts that are involved in post-production, but they don't get that deep dive. I mean, because again, it's like, it's not something that you can master over overnight. It's something that, you know, you get better at over time. And not to mention that, you know, it's constantly changing. We're living in a world of ever-changing formats and specs and delivery, you know, materials. So it's kind of constantly evolving, as you well know. And um, you've kind of got to keep, you know, keep up with your game. So again, this is the kind of information we want to provide. I think it's great because I think there's a lot of other people teaching specific skill sets, whether it be for color correction or what have you. But our world is a very specific world, you know, assisting, editing, visual effects, assisting, visual effects editor, which, you know, a lot of people have no idea even exists and is very different.
learn from visual effects compositing or visual effects supervisor. So, you know, sound supervisors, sound editors, Foley editors, dialogue editors. We're an industry of specialists also. I mean, you know, and people end up doing an area of specialization because they get really good at it. And that's what people want to hire them for. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you can't cross over and do a few things, but, you know, so that's our world, you know, in high-end post-production and television and features. And then you've got like the YouTube world where people do everything, you know, people shoot, cut, color correct, compress, upload and distribute their own projects. So, you know, there's kind of like two worlds evolving. (laughs) There's the continuation of our, you know, sort of end of the business. And then there's like this whole new world of filmmakers, really, really good filmmakers that do quite a bit of it themselves. Interestingly enough, some of the best ones that I enjoy watching their films and videos and tutorials, you know, pretty quickly on after they get some success, start hiring people to do the other things. You know, it's like, to the best of my knowledge, Peter McKinnon doesn't cut his own, you know, YouTube videos anymore. He concentrates on the shooting and the writing, and then he has people help with uh, the editing and, and, and what have you. But, you know, that's what happens once you start having to turn out material or wanting to raise that material to a, you know, to a higher level of quality. You get some help. On your webpage, I noticed, because I've been following this for a while, because I think when you first announced it, I signed up for the list because I was thinking for my students. I've seen like you do some live stuff or in-class stuff, and then there's stuff online, like there's a login portal for the students. So what's the difference? What can people expect from the two different sort of worlds there? You know, we really haven't done a lot of live live stuff. We did one live webinar for one of our launches, which was a lot of fun, but a ton of work. And, you know, because I've been working for the last year on a film, I just haven't had the wherewithal to do that stuff. But the objective is to do more of that stuff, do more kind of live stuff um, and, and do more kind of like things that expose people who are interested in the craft to, you know, the different sort of like avenues. And um, for example, I just did a uh, an interview with my music editor that we're going to put some of that up on on YouTube and then we're going to put more of it up, you know, for actual students who are enrolled in the class. You know, so it's just sort of like a mix of content right now. We're working with a really a really wonderful uh, writer in the UK who is also a teacher at a film school up there in Manchester and she provides a lot of great info for aspiring post-production professionals and assistants and such. Uh, we want to kind of like, you know, continue to explore ways that we can expose post-production to people who have, you know, traditionally been unable to access post-production, people of color, uh, women, although women have always had a pretty strong role in, in editing. But because there's such a, you know, such a huge technical aspect of it, we see, you know, just from, you know, strictly statistics that there's a lot more men interested in, you know, but we know that, that women are out there and they, they want to, you know, learn about the craft. So we're trying to get more visibility for them. And then we, you know, we try to provide a certain amount of, you know, free scholarships to people who, again, traditionally don't have the um, resources to enroll in a class like ours. We partnershiped with ACE and we provided a bunch of uh, scholarships to their interns and people in their fellowship programs. So, you know, we're, we're just doing outreach to the best of our ability, you know, because again, I'm a working editor. Richard is a working now. Uh, he, his last credit was as a visual 
special effects assistant on uh, Catch-22 for Hulu. So, you know, we're just trying to do everything we can with the time that we have. But like I said, just finished the film and I'm going to take the summer off and I'm going to spend a bunch of time sort of developing, you know, Master the Workflow and the courses that we offer. So uh, I'm look at, looking forward to it. I can tell you I'm, I'm looking for it because I've told a bunch of students about it. And I'm like, if you're wanting to get in, you got to get that assistant stuff under your belt and understand it. And we just don't have time at the schools. So it's a great resource. Yeah, you know, and um, this year we became an approved vendor by Contract Services Trust Fund Training Administration, and that allows anybody who's already in the Motion Picture Editors Guild nationwide to be reimbursed for uh, about two-thirds of the cost of the course. So that was a really nice sort of stamp of approval. And, you know, we're, we're talking to some of the major software developers now in terms of, you know, partnering with them and you know, we've been at Ace Edit Fest LA the last couple of years. I was at Ace London, Edit Fest London the last couple of, uh, last year. So it's it's cool. We're meeting we're meeting a lot of people and getting the word out. Now I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, jeez, there's so many. Um, you know, I, I like going back and watching a lot of the films that I loved as a kid. Um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you know? I mean, I love uh, some of the <laughs> the old musicals and, and things like that. But that's not so guilty. Those are just, you know, fun movies that I like to watch with my kids. Um, I'll tell you that um, maybe a guilty pleasure is this film that I saw last weekend with my 11-year-old son called Spider-Man Far From Home. I'm not the biggest super hero movie fan but i have such respect for the people that make those films in fact quite a few of my friends and editing associates work on and make those films uh former assistant uh, jeff ford cut uh, avengers endgame and one of my former assistants uh sal valone was on uh the first avengers so i have a tremendous amount of respect for the amount of work that's involved in that stuff but i've just never been a comic book guy i mean my brother was a comic book guy so those are kind of like the guilty pleasures but but all, overall, I just love movies. I, I love some of the stuff that they're doing in television now. I think a lot of the really talented people from features have gone into television and have an opportunity to make television now. So there's just a lot of really good material out there to watch. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much for letting me uh, interview you. It's my pleasure. We've known each other a long time. It's good to catch up again. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks. Have a good one. So that was my interview with Lawrence. I'd like to thank Lawrence Jordan for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Naraj Patel for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.